You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole and coming at you there from ancient Rome. So I'm not really sure how you're getting this, but it's the magic of the internet. And I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to welcome back Zachary Fruling. Zachary, how are you doing? Thanks, Matt. I am glad EA Tour to be here, as usual. <laughs> Very nice. Well done. Well done. So uh, we are going to be talking about uh, one of the biggest movies of the 2000s, which was Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. Really excited to dive into this one. But before we get there, of course, you know, you can subscribe to us wherever you're listening that way you'll get all of our episodes as soon as they release. Of course, you can also find us on social media. We would love it if you would interact with us and follow us over there on places like uh, X at the 602 Club. Of course, on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We've got the entire network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find us online at trek.fm as well. And you can support us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm. And make sure that everything that we do here keeps coming to you uh, each and every week. And so I, I wanted, before we even dive into anything, um, Zach, I, I just wanted to know uh, for you, uh, with, you know, Gladiator, was this like a movie that, uh, you know, caught your attention when it came out? Was it something that you, you know, um, saw back then that you were excited for? Uh, I'm just wondering kind of, you know, where you are with, with this movie and maybe what your history is with it. Yeah, honestly, I, I didn't see it when it came out. I was, uh, when it came out, I was head down with grad school, my early years of grad school, and I, I really wasn't seeing film very much. So uh, it would have been right up my alley. I've always had an interest in classics. I took Latin in college, for example, and uh, you would you'd think it would be right up my alley. I just didn't, just didn't get that far. So I, I actually don't remember the first time I saw it. I saw it... Uh, uh, sometime after it came out, uh, you know, probably on on DVD at some point, but I, I really don't even remember the first time. I didn't see it in the theater, though. Nice. Okay. Well, I totally understand that. that you know, I, there are those movies that almost feels like even if you didn't see when they came out, it's hard to even remember when you first saw them just because they become so ingrained for you. And so get that completely. Um, I did go see this in theaters. This was I mean, I was I was at that point uh in college and you know i'm really starting to kind of spread my wings when it comes to film and this was definitely one that i was excited for and looking forward to when it came out which is another part of this is is the fact that this is kind of a return to the sword and sandals films that had been so popular in early hollywood especially in the 60s with those big movies like ben-hur uh, the Ten Commandments, Spartacus, and the like. And so I'm really interested for you, like, was that a part of film history that you had grown up with? Had you watched those films? Were you, you know, um, aware of those things so that, uh, you know, kind of when we get to this, it's like, yeah, there's been kind of a huge break between 
those films and then doing this. I think, honestly, Braveheart probably paved the way for this film. You and I had talked about Braveheart some time ago, and there's no way this film would have happened if Braveheart hadn't been successful, because it was really Braveheart just a small number of years before that brought the epic genre back. And so some of these battle scenes, like the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of the the film... um, uh, that could never have happened without what, without what Braveheart did. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I was pay, I was prepared for it and I enjoyed it when I encountered the film, but I think probably only because I saw Braveheart first. Nice. No, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting for me, you know, many people who've listened to this show know that I grew up watching a diet of, of older films, you know, from black and white movies to westerns to you know all of those in, incredible classics from the 60s you know like a ben-hur 10 commandments spartacus and the like like i i grew up with all of those movies so this was a genre uh that the sword and sandals i was very you know familiar with and i always enjoyed those type of movies and i i think you're 100 percent right in in nailing that I don't think that this film gets made without the fact that uh, Ben Braveheart had been successful. Um, you know, another part of this film, um, its history, is the fact that, um, you know, Steven Spielberg became interested in it because of the fact that, you know, he had done Amistad um, and saw the script and really liked it. And, you know, so he was also interested in in this and so um but yeah i mean this was though in many ways you know even though braveheart had been obviously successful um you know this is a risk for the studios to take in um creating this film because obviously this is one of those movies like the scale of it is astounding and then of course what they're going to try and do with making you feel like you're back in ancient Rome and in the Colosseum is something that I don't, you know, nobody had really attempted. I don't think anything on this type of scale before when it comes to recreating our lost history in this way. Yeah, it's like in the 70s and 80s with the gritty realism that you see in film and television from that time period. The stories kind of shrunk in scope in some way. And, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, in this time period, the, the the scope of film started to expand again. You could get epics. And you know, I love epics in general. I like epic literature. So this is in line with my my uh, view of what good fiction should be, for sure. Um, it was fascinating. To, you know, we, we talked about Braveheart just a little bit, but it's, um, it's fascinating to kind of see the evolution. Like some of the battle scenes really did remind me of Braveheart, but they have kind of a, a sheen to them a gloss on them with the filters that were were put on the camera and with the the different uh, uh, camera speeds and different effects that were used. It's like it's like Braveheart battle scenes plus. <laughs> you know, it didn't take too many years for the for the the uh, technology and the the style to emerge even further. I think the artsiness. I was just it's a very art. It's a very artsy movie. It's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, I mean, I would say compared to Braveheart, it has that kind. Of, Braveheart has that kind of realism to it. It's not a lot of. Uh, filters and layers and effects, you know, maybe some different camera speeds, but this is a very glossy movie compared to Braveheart, I think. Well, I, I think a part of that too is that by uh, creating that those effects, um, you're able to kind of marry everything you need to do, especially once you get to Rome, uh, visual effects wise, so everything's consistent. 
Um, and I think that's obviously something that you begin to see in many films where uh, there's a really tight control. And, and of course, you know, at this point, too, the Lord of the Rings films had come out. And those movies are renowned for uh, the fact that they went and color graded every single basically shot of the film um, to be consistent and to marry everything together and make you feel as though um, there there's not a moment, hopefully, that you're getting pulled out. Right. And and I think, um, you know, Gladiator in some ways, you know, we talked about Braveheart, but I also think it owes a lot to the fact that the Lord of the Rings films had become successful at this point as well. And people were kind of gravitating to these kind of epic stories. And, you know, again, this one is is still a risk because we hadn't done something set in our own ancient history like this in quite some time. And so, but I, th- I think you rightly pointing out um, the way in which you see the way the movie is shot, the way the movie, you know, kind of presents itself through uh the the desaturation or you know the the way in which they kind of use uh, even some slow motion and you know all those type of things all of this is working together to kind of um i think in many ways just sell us back into this time period but also i think to to make you know, movies had changed completely since the last major sword and sandals type of film had come out. And so this movie very much, I think, mirrors a lot of the things that, um, you know, you you take the, the Braveheart like gritty action sequences. But then I think you've married that with a lot of the stuff that Jackson did in the Lord of the Rings films. And you kind of put it all together in a blender with, you know, Ben-Hur and Spartacus and you get Gladiator, which, you know, I I think we know from the box office and from the fact that this movie continues to be one that people talk about and watch, you know, um, it was successful. You know, people ended up loving it. And it, it really created a resurgence then in these types of films being able to be made, whether, you know, you got Troy then and Alexander and all these other films that came out afterwards. And so, yeah, I mean, this this did great. I think you're right that Gladiator is probably not a pioneer of any of these particular things, whether it's the color scheme or the gloss or the CGI. Of course, it's it's like the natural consequence of all those things put together. I'm thinking of mo- movies from the late 90s like uh, The Matrix that has its own color palette, so to speak, or Fight Club that has its own color palette in the various scenes uh, because of the filtering that's used. And what I, what I do like about the way that's done in this film, I like, the, I like that the different... Uh, um, uh, portions of the movie have their own color palettes, like like uh, uh, Maximus's dream sequence have their own color palette, so to speak. It really, it's very immersive, I think, and uh, kind of shows what a uh, how, how do you show them what a dream would look like? You know, dreams are supposed to be uh, lesser, uh, less colored than, than than real life, right? In some way, and it captures what a dream sequence would be. I I, I like that. I think it's very very well done, but but not terribly pioneering. It's it's just the evolution of all the things we'd already talked about. I think that's one of the things, too, you know, like the movie also does, which is that it has a color palette for all the different type of places that you end up in the film. You know, the the Germany sequence at the beginning has its own kind of like muted color palette that, you know, everything feels almost like you're covered in mud. And so does the look, Uh, you know, you you, you have uh, the sequence of. Then, you know, being in the desert uh, and uh, that 
you know, uh, very brown hued. And then you get to Rome and it has this kind of golden hue to it. And in every part of this film is, is, you know, uh, saying something through that color palette and uh as many films you know do and and like you said it's not necessarily anything new i do think that it just stands out as as we're trying to make a type of genre work for the modern audience i think you know really scott does a fantastic job and 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 really bringing that then to the modern audience in a way that they can digest and understand but i think also then allows us to maybe get as close as we would ever get to living in, you know, ancient Rome for a while and kind of having a sense of what it's like. I think it works exceedingly well. I mean, obviously, the power of imagery was not lost on the ancient Romans themselves. So if you can evoke that in some way that's successful, that's amazing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the I was just reading Tom Holland's third book in his Roman series, uh, Pax, and, and, you know, the whole uh, every Roman emperor uh, especially in that time period that he's covering um, from Nero to uh, Hadrian, you know, has a massive works project that they do, you know, and and so and they're putting their own stamp on Rome. Um, and so and of course, in that time period, you also have what was known then as the the Flavian uh, Amphitheater, uh, which we know as the Colosseum. And so, yeah, I mean, it. it to do that, then it creates something really, really interesting. And, and maybe it's a great time, I think, because we're already discussing it. But but one of the biggest successes, I think, of the film is the production of it, which we recreate Rome, the Colosseum, these epic battles, the, the sets, the location shooting that we do. And we create this realism. I mean, the the set that was supposed to be Germany was was actually filmed in England, and it was a section of woods that was going to be cut down. So they were able to actually literally create this set on location that is massive and is in a forest um, and has been clear cut the way they want it to be because the rest of it's going to be cut down. And then they can do what they need to with it. And Ridley Scott wanted snow, and it literally snowed. That's real snow. Well, it's easy to forget how big the Roman Empire really was, right? It's not implausible that that's where Romans would have been, right? Yeah. So I just think, I, I, you know, as I'm thinking about the film, I think one of the things that makes it such a success really is the intention to detail that they have, the fact that they're finding all of these locations for real. And their goal was to make this feel, even with all the trickery that they use, as real as possible so that one felt as though, and this is, I think, probably the most successful part of the film, that you were in the Colosseum um, like an ancient Roman, seeing it the same way they would have at that time period. I can't imagine another depiction prior of, of events in the Colosseum prior to Gladiator that was anywhere near as convincing. I mean, it really is amazing when you when you look at it. I mean, I th- I think the only one, obviously, is the chariot race in Ben Hur. Yeah, um, obviously, which sure. you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 when you think of that time period too, and what they were able to accomplish then, it's it's astounding, right? And so, and I think that's the thing is that 
to me, the fact that this stands up to that work and right alongside it. So when I do, of course, think the Coliseum, I think of those two films. Those two films, absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, there's just... It, that's where I think this film really stands apart. And again, you know, when you had all of these other films come later, whether it was Alexander or Troy or the like, and they're trying to, I think, kind of recapture the same kind of magic you got in Gladiator, they may or may not have been as successful. And I, I think a big part of that here is, you know, the the, the tension to detail with the production uh, value in the production work, put in the production designers, the the art directors, and all of that um, created something that that pulled you in and never let you go until the film ended. Well, what I think the film does really successfully, it manages to balance the epic scope of it and the gritty realism and the kind of glossy sheen we talked about and and doing all of that but not not uh, sacrificing anything of the human stories this is a very very touching human dramatic story and i'd say the the interpersonal scenes that are that are small in scope say between maximus and commodus or between commodus and his sister or whomever those are really dramatic scenes that fit very very comfortably inside this movie well, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it, one of the most interesting things about this film is the fact that it was plagued by script issues almost the entire time, that they were constantly rewriting things during shooting and finding the characters and finding their stories. And you you end up honestly, too, with Russell Crowe, who's throughout most of the filming, not actually very happy with a lot of it because there's too many times where they're just like telling him, like, go out and do something what would you do here you know and a lot of the stuff ends up i mean he came up with quite a few of the things like you know the at my signal unleash hell and so it's it's one of those places where i i'm astounded that the movie ends up working the way it does because there's such turmoil behind the scenes and yet i think it's one of those places where and much like the the roman empire itself it's the struggle that ended up making it something great like that out of the struggle um and people you know working as as hard and diligently and even maybe as frustratingly as they can they're in the end able to create something astounding that stands you know the test of time it's interesting you say that there were problems with the dialogue because i got the sense along the way that uh, there were moments in the film where uh, they probably couldn't think of anything to say. They just they just chew on Russell Crowe's uh, facial reaction. <laughs> like there feels like there should be some dialogue here, but we're just going to linger on Russell Crowe's face for a little bit. It works very well. Maybe they just couldn't think of any good dialogue to plug in there and went for some good reaction shots. Well, and I think that's you know one of the places too, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I I do think that there are times in the movie where just a look says everything. And, you know, I think the film is actually able to overcome the script issues because of the cast. And I do think specifically because Russell Crowe embodies the character of Maximus. He embodies who this person is, and he tells you who he is in every single one of his 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 actions, you know, whether it's rubbing the dirt in his hands or the way that he kind of just 
longingly will stare out into space and and you know you know from the beginning of the film that he's thinking of that dream of just being home with his wife and his son he he wants you know he longs to be back there just to be a simple farmer again and and i think without him i i don't know if anybody else makes this work the way that he does and just kind of draws you into the character and it you know, I think from the very beginning, you just buy that this guy is a real guy. Do you think he had any sense at the time that he was uh, creating a, a career-defining role? I mean, I maybe I'm not sure of your take on this, but it strikes me that this is Russell Crowe's career-defining role for sure. You know, I think that Russell Crowe, and I was reading some quotes from him, uh, I, I think that he was cocky enough to believe that he was the good enough actor to make anything work. And um, I he, think he is cocky. I have a, a friend of mine worked at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco and met Russell Crowe and said he was a cocky uh, when he came into the hotel. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, though, that's for them. The the blessing of casting him was 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 getting somebody who was willing to struggle to figure out what it, what needed to happen. You know, and I think in some ways had the. Um, you know, he even talks about the idea of his, his own kind of volatility um, is what allowed this to come forth on screen. You know, again, I, I think it I think it really is him that just makes this work. And yet he displays a remarkable degree of, uh, I would say, just emotional sensitivity in his facial expressions. Well, I, exactly. You know, I mean, I, I think you saying that makes me think of, you know, the moment where, you know, he's the battle is over. He's at the shrine in his his room and he's praying and he's talking about, you know, um, his his wife and his son, you know, to his aid. And there's such tenderness and, and like love. And, and, and I think, again, that's the the genius of of his portrayal in the film is that he can play every single aspect that you need and you're 100% you know I mean like he 100% zeroes you in on what you're supposed to be feeling along with the character and there's never a moment where you're like oh that doesn't feel right i have to say though for me it really is Joaquin Phoenix that steals the show in this movie yeah i'm i'm you know i think what's really interesting here is that there's nobody better who plays kind of like amoral, psychopathic, power-hungry uh, jerk than him. I mean... In a very quiet, soft-spoken way, it's very, you know, he does creepy really well. I mean, it's it's obviously the, the reason he was the Joker. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, what's, what's funny here, and I don't know if you've seen it yet, but I saw Napoleon uh, that stars him, that Ridley Scott... Directed. No, not yet. And basically, he plays Napoleon, unfortunately, very similar to me to the way he did Commodus, and it does not work in that film. Where where here, it completely works. And no, I I agree with you. I think he makes the villain that you love to hate, and that you can't we wait to see die right, and you hope dies. Like when you're watching this first time, you don't know if that's going to happen. And and think well, you, you especially don't know it's going to happen because this is a, this is not a historical story. Exactly. <laughs> this is a completely fabricated story. Of course, Commodus was killed, but he wasn't killed in this context. And you know, he was the son of Marcus Aurelius, and they just they play fast and loose with the characters and the his, the actual history. So you don't actually know what's going to happen. 
which it like you said you know i think one of the beauties of this movie is that it's it's historical it's historical fiction though and so therefore it allows you to kind of feel like you're in that ancient world but they don't have to to you know follow any specific script uh and so that uh, allows the audience to truly be drawn in and um like you said be surprised and I, i think you know one of the big surprises in this film like you mentioned is just the way that joaquin phoenix is just able to make your skin crawl i wanted to ask you this because i know you share a love of history uh like i do um you know, what What are your thoughts on just basically the genre of historical fiction in general? I mean, um, it's one thing to create a film that is trying to bring actual historical events to life. And then it's another thing to have a film that uses historical characters in a completely fictionalized story that only loosely resembles history. And I think Gladiator probably goes in the latter category, I think. Um, is that, does that do a service to history or disservice to history or both? Uh, you know, it's, there are people that probably think gladiator was actual history and that would be, uh, unfortunate. Um, you know, it's really, uh, it's a good question. And I think, you know, we obviously touched on this with Braveheart, right? Because, Mm -hmm. um, in some ways there's a historicity to that, but it's also things that are being extrapolated. Um, and or, you know, maybe completely made up. Uh, and I do think that, you know, and, and it is one of the dangers with film, right, is that uh, specifically people can just take things at face value. Um, but I do think that there's something special about being able to see something on film like this and make us feel like we're there and, and, and all of that. Um but, you know, I do think as the audience member, we also have to be aware that no matter how close a film is, it's always going to be in some semblance fiction, even if it's based off a true story. In fact, any movie that says based off a true story is still somewhat fiction because there are places where they've added or I mean, they, so to me, I, I don't think that it does a disservice to history. Um, I, I think what the beauty of these types of films you know, whether it's uh, Braveheart or this or any historical epic or even any based off a true story, right? Um, I, I think of the fact that, you know, like Killers of the Flower Moon just came out uh, this year and it's also based off a, a true story. And any of those, to me, the power of them is that so much of the time, those books that they're based off of or stories that they're based off of, people those become bestsellers, right? Because people want to go and know the truth of the matter. And so I think more than anything that these films actually do a service to the the importance that history is to us and should be to us. And I always appreciate it that they actually, you know, make people go and read about the true history. And I think that's the thing that that's really awesome. And um, hopefully that's something that will continue as, as we move further on in, in, in the future. But uh, that's how I feel. I, what do you think about that? Is Do you agree or do you, is it some mix or what do you think? 
Oh, completely. I think, you know, as you know, I'm a college instructor and I'm, I'm constantly uh, disturbed a bit by the, the lack of historical awareness that, that my students have about Western culture or Western history, ancient or relatively modern even. And so anything that provides historical context for West, Western culture is probably a good thing in my mind. Um, and of course, as a, as a philosophy instructor and philosopher, I'm particularly intrigued by the portrayal of, uh, of Marcus Aurelius, uh, you know, one of the, one of the central Stoic philosophers from the, from the, uh, Hellenistic time period. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, if this causes anyone to go research anything about Roman history or research anything about Marcus Aurelius or Stoicism or anything remotely related, that's probably a good thing for culture in general, given this relatively ahistorical age we live in. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree more, which is a great question, you know, uh, with you being a student of somebody like Marcus Aurelius. What did you think of the portrayal here uh, from Richard Harris, you know, one of his final roles? Honestly, I think it's incredibly convincing. You know, it's it's hard for us to imagine, I think, what it would have been like to be a Roman emperor. <laughs> you have life or death power over everyone in the known universe, essentially, right? You can have you can have all the money you want brought to you. You can have all the wine you want and live in a drunken stupor for the 20 years you're emperor if you want to, right? It takes an Im- immense amount of self-control to be a good Roman emperor, and Marcus Aurelius was known as the last of the good Roman emperors. Probably the the closest ex- closest example you can point to in actual history of any time period anywhere in the world of what Plato called the philosopher king, someone who didn't want to be emperor but became emperor and has the self-discipline and wisdom and temperance and knowledge and virtue to actually be a good emperor and do consistently good things, <laughs> given that he can basically behead anyone when he wants uh, on, on a whim, an incredible amount of self-control. And it comes through in Marcus Aurelius's writings, his mainly we have his, his diary, which I think they're showing him writing inside the movie this is a scene where he's writing pages of something. He's probably writing his meditations. That's what he's known for in, in philosophy, which was his private journal to himself and basically notes about how to be a good person, given all the many difficulties he had to face. But I think what, what what's interesting about Marcus Aurelius is how tragic of a, of a figure he really is. You get the sense from reading his his actual work in the real world that he did just want to be a philosopher and read his books and do good things and he had the huge misfortune of being born Roman <laughs> born into into such a circumstance that he became Roman emperor and he has to do right by the the empire and right by the people around him and put up with all of the uh, 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 how to put it uh, all of the uh, I'm trying trying to struggle even to think of the right word all of the lack of uh, all the selfishness and the greed and the ambition and all of the lesser qualities of everyone around him. And he has to deal with it every single day. Every time someone encounters him, someone wants something from him. And he consistently does good things. He really stands out in history uh, in that regard. So I think the, the portrayal of, of, of him in the movie was remarkably well done. You do get the sense that Marcus Aurelius is tired. He's had a huge weight on his shoulders. He cares a lot about, about Rome for Rome's sake. He cares a lot about virtue. We talk about the cardinal virtues inside the movie. Um, and of course, most Roman emperors didn't have those qualities, much less most much you know, most world leaders in general. So um, I'm, I'm glad they portrayed him in a way that did justice to the kind of person that he really was. You know, he had to go out and conquer. He had to wage war. He had to defend the empire. He had to, he had to do all the things all the Roman emperors do. But he really cared about virtue for virtue's sake. And that comes across in his works and in the film, I'm glad to see. Yeah, I think Richard Harris is great. Um, I love him as an actor, and especially in his later life, you know, um, 
it was always a, a huge blow to me that he was not able to complete the Harry Potter series as Dumbledore. I think he's just phenomenal here. I, I, I love, too, that these types of movies created a resurgence in his career that people would then go back and find his his earlier works. And, and, and as you mentioned, I think one of the beauties of his portrayal is that he has such a great job in the short amount of screen time he has of portraying the type of person he is and why he's doing what he's doing with Maximus. In the sense that Maximus doesn't want power either. He didn't want to be a general. He didn't want to be any of those things, but he has power thrust upon him. And these two become the people in which kind of are living out that axiom of, you know, the best leaders are the ones who don't seek power but have it put upon them. And and so I think Harris does such a great job in that, and it becomes such an interesting thing to see but on top of that, I love the juxtaposition of him with somebody like Oliver Reed, who plays Proximo, you know, who is somebody who embodies that spirit of and, and it's interesting because I, I, you know, Ridley Scott is a is a British filmmaker, but he almost embodies that um, American spirit of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, and 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 make your own destiny. And I really love Oliver Reed's performance in the film. It's such an, an incredibly moving performance and it's, it's terrible and sad that he died. Um, and that in fact, his last scene in the film um, was one that they had to uh, put together through a lot of CGI trickery from previous scenes that they hadn't used to actually create his last scene because he was actually supposed to live. Um, and through his death, they they weren't able to do that. So they had to, to work this. But his performance to me is one that is such a great uh, juxtaposition between in, in that almost triad of relationships between him, Marcus Aurelius, him, Marcus Aurelius, and uh, of course, Maximus. Well, Proximo is an interesting character, and I, I get the sense you probably agree with this. I think there there are just different types of people. There are people that I think have probably a more sensitive temperament. Virtue comes naturally to them. They tend to do the right thing. And, you know, those people have to be dragged out of their shell to do something bad once in a while. And I think it's there's the other personality type. There are people, you know, whether by nature or by nurture, by their experience or by temperament, they're they're uh entertainers or they're business people and they they play fast and loose with the rules they have ambition they have whatever and they have to kind of learn to do the right thing and i think proximo has to learn that rome for rome's sake and all the virtues that go with it are uh, are, are good in and of themselves uh, aside from his own personal gain and that's that's part of his story arc he has to learn those things mm-hmm. yeah no i i agree with you completely and and you know, one of the other cast members here, and this is really kind of our main introduction, I think, to Connie Nielsen as an, an actress, but I found her, and every time I watch this film, I find her to be incredibly moving, especially as she is playing this dangerous game of the road she has to walk as, you know, her amoral, power-hungry brother comes to the throne of Rome wants her <laughs> and you know she also then sides with uh the roman senators who want to put maximus in charge so we can restore the republic and 
I, I everything that she I, and and this is what you when you were talking about the way in which many of these actors I feel like just a look told you everything you needed to know about what the character was going through and there are so many times she has absolutely no lines but her face says everything um and it's it's like her face is a billboard uh and it's it's phenomenal um and it 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 really does almost feel as though so many of the scenes she has there are just subtitles for the expressions on her face like it, it, it because you're reading it all over her face and it's i i i'm again watching this film i'm constantly impressed with work that she does here because um it's a it's a terrible position a terrible position that this character is in I really enjoy her performance. And like you said, she walks a tightrope and that comes across on screen and in her, her facial reactions. Again, great actress. The thing that takes me out of the film, though, is the constant use of British accents to <laughs> to uh, uh, for, for characters that are supposed to be Roman, which are more Italian. I'd really like to see them play it more Italian than British. But so that, you know, and, and I think her performance in particular uh, takes me out of it just a bit. Uh, it's not no fault of hers, just how they decided to play it. It's fine. It's common in, in depictions of Rome. Uh, uh, for some reason, I don't fully understand still probably having to do with the British stage, but, um, I think her, her performance is made. What, what I, what I like, this is just a moment having to do with her character. I like when Commodus calls her a busy bee, because that's a hearkening back to Marcus Aurelius's meditations. I don't know if, how much of Marcus Aurelius's meditations you've read, but there's a passage in there when he says, you know, when you get up in the morning, you're lazy. You don't feel like getting out of bed. Just want to stay warm. Look out the window and see the birds building their nests and, you know, bees building their honeycombs. All, you know, all the creatures of the, the earth are out there uh, trying to do their part to make order, order out of the chaos around them and you know where do we humans get off being lazy and wanting to stay in bed so just calling her a busy bee is an interesting hearkening back to uh to marcus aurelius's meditations uh, themselves yeah no i think uh i think all of that is great um I, one of the things that we've kind of been touching on a little bit throughout the this conversation and i think it's really interesting is is obviously this movie because you know it features marcus aurelius um the film itself really does feel like a meditation on power uh, and the idea of of how power is used. You know, um, you have Marcus Aurelius thinking about the way that he's used power, the fact that he's been at war uh, most of his reign as emperor. Was it the right thing to do? Was it necessary? Did it matter? You know, um, all of these wars. Um you know, you have Maximus, who's somebody who doesn't want power at all. He literally just wants to be at home with his family to provide for them, basically to use his power for the benefit of his family. And then, of course, you know, you have Commodus, who's a, a power-hungry maniac who only wants power so he can literally do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it and have nobody question him. And... Then you have, you know, the senators who they want power, they say, to have it more even evenly distributed to, quote unquote, give it back to the people and create a public system again. And so you have all of these different levels of people who are desiring to utilize power in some way, shape or form. And it is very interesting that much like Braveheart, that this movie seems to, at least from my reading, kind of land on this idea 
that power is to be used uh, for the benefit of others, to give others their freedom. And any other use of power is kind of a, an abuse of that. And I just find it very interesting that both Braveheart and then, of course, this movie seem to kind of fall down in the in the same side when it comes to the idea of why we use power, why we might even use violent power, um, and uh, what war might be for, and all of those type of things, which I find really interesting. And honestly, it seems more salient now than it did 20 years ago, uh, you know, with authoritarianism on the rise uh, around the world and arguably here in the United States as well. Um, you know, we're the people have made the made the comparison between the United States and the and the Roman Republic a great many times right? <laughs> for good reason. The Roman Rebel, Republic declined and it declined into an empire. And it's did you pick up on the fact that one of the uh, characters um uh, uh, Maximus's uh, right hand man, whoever, whatever his role was supposed to be, was, was was named Cicero, and it couldn't have been the historical Cicero because the time periods don't match up, right? But he, but the character was named Cicero, presumably pointing back to the actual historical Cicero, who was constantly decrying the the decline of the of the Republic and the rise of authoritarianism with Julius Caesar. So um, yeah, this is obviously commentary on 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 you know, solidified power versus distributed power. And that's an issue the United States is facing currently, I think. Well, and, and something that you had mentioned on our outline was, you know, Maximus asked the question of what is Rome, you know, the ideal of Rome. Um, and, you know, the, the whole ideal that, that, that Rome had once been a Republic, but ceased to be, you know, hundreds of years ago at this point. And it it's all because, People took it upon themselves to make themselves emperor. And, you know, I, I think it, it's so fascinating to, to be able to think through this idea because the, the question, and, and I think you're absolutely right, the question in this film, what is Rome, and uh, is, is really a question of what is the West for us today. Right. Um, and and uh, have we strayed from those ideals? You know, and, and I think that's really what the phone, the film to me seems to try to be getting us to ask in the same way it's asking it of the Roman society there. And and I think the, the reason that is, is because the film is, is, I think, really pointing us to that fact of like, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so if we don't ask ourselves these these questions, the same way Rome really never asked itself these questions, it fell into to decadence and, and destruction, right? So will that happen to us if we don't ask ourselves these questions, which is one of the things I think the film is really driving at with this question about power. This is a really interesting line of reasoning because arguably, you know, we here in the United States have, have – um, uh, our own version of this narrative, right? What does it mean to be an American? What does it be, mean to be a citizen of the United States? What is the United States? What are its ideals? What are its founding principles? What is it? And it's a very, frankly, it's not even a Roman question to ask. It's a Greek question to ask. What are the essential characteristics of justice or the essential characteristics of a good society, right? That's not a Roman question. That's a Greek question, <laughs> right? And where, um, where I think things, um, fail a bit in 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 the roman mindset in the actual world i think where where the roman empire probably failed is they 
they they wanted to kind of live in the shadow of the Greeks. They wanted to build an empire, but they couldn't ask these questions in the way that the Greeks could. Right? They're they're more like the builders and the project managers and the emperors and the you know they're not the philosophers of the of the Hellenistic world, so to speak. So you know, yeah, you know, we have this we here in the United States and then the, by extension the Western world as a whole, we kind of walk this line between being part Roman and part Greek in our mindset and. Uh, just coming along and asking what is Rome in some abstract, idealistic, lofty sense. I mean, even Marcus Aurelius couldn't do that. He didn't do that in his writing, right? Um, that's not a question that really meshes well with the Roman mindset. They're too busy conquering and they're too busy building and they're too busy, you know, creating an empire. They're not they're not sitting around philosophizing and asking about their ideals, although certain you know, ideals of you know, courage and bravery and expansion and there certainly are ideals, but I just don't think they have the kind of abstract loftiness that you get in the Greek world or arguably even here in the in the United States. Well, I mean, again, I think it really just comes down to the fact that um, we consistently see, you know, through every period of history, there is this there, you know, you think of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And we like to pretend like that's not true. Um, and I think especially in our day and age, and like most of these days uh, and ages that we've had in the past, there's a chronological snobbery, you know, as C.S. Lewis called it, you know, that we think we know better and we don't really need to know what people knew then because we know what we know now and that's better. But, you know, not understanding that all of that is built on something and it's all connected. And the biggest part of this is is that, you know, are we going to learn the lessons from the past that doomed other societies or are we just going to kind of fall into the same trap? And what we see time and time again is that we just fall into the same traps and another society finally falls and another rises in its place because they're not willing to to learn and and to yeah was it was it Hegel was it Hegel that said uh, what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history <laughs> yeah it, it, there you go you know and so. And and I think that the interesting thing that this movie also does is that by having these meditations on power, it also allows us to kind of go back uh, and see these gory games. And the movie doesn't shy away from showing us the goriness of the games and people salivating over the idea of watching somebody die. Um, I was thinking in the ways in which, you know, even Maximus is lined. Are you not entertained? Gets at this idea at pointing out how awful it is that people are cheering for the death of somebody. How cheap life has become when it becomes entertainment or convenience. And that to me was an, was terribly fascinating because this movie still resonates with that even today. The Romans are such a paradoxical people, you know, because obviously they were brutal in many different ways in the Colosseum and around the world. But at the same time, they can be some of the most tenderest, loving, you know, Italian people, <laughs> right? I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of like, um, I don't know, like Roman funerary inscriptions along the Appian Way. You read those and they're incredibly touching and sentimental. And you're like, wow, how are these the same people that are, you know, cheering for gladiators in the Colosseum? It's, it's a paradox. Well, and I, I think, I do think that what that shows us today is the ability for people to have that cognitive dissonance and not even to be able to realize it, right? 
And I think, you know, and, and also that we, we have the cognitive dissonance and they maybe didn't. <laughs> well, right? I, I would say that values do. have changed. We live in the Christian era. Yeah, right? they, but I they, would say that they do because in, in some ways, like, but even more so, yes. And I think you raise an incredibly salient point, you know, uh, and, and I'm referencing a bunch of Tom Holland books today, but I encourage anybody to read it because it's phenomenal. His book Dominion about the way in which um, the society that we have today, the West, is literally built on the back of Judeo-Christian values and how we cannot get away from it. And yet we like have an, you, well, we have an identity crisis exactly. about it. Like it's like we we want to be humble and meek and mild and have all the Judeo-Christian yep. virtues that go with that. But we also love those Romans and we like to build and we like to conquer and we like the individual heroism. And, and we're we're fundamentally torn between these two different uh, historical right. ideals. Well, and and then, too, he makes the point that if you were to take away those values, none of the things that we hold to make any sense. You know, without that, you don't have any. Um, basis for inalienable human rights or any of those type of things. So, I mean, and that's a whole other discussion. But I, I think, again, this movie, by allowing us to see death as entertainment, it should really make us question those places where we have cognitive dissonance about the idea of death, where life is so cheap that it becomes an entertainment or a convenience. And you know, obviously that's the point of the Hunger Games series as well, and it's one of the reasons why I think they became so popular is that they actually pinpointed our cognitive dissonance, but people then just took it as entertainment and didn't think about it. And I, that's where, as we've been saying this whole time, the the goal then should be for us to wrestle with these ideas and come out the other side hopefully better for having wrestled with them instead of just pretending like they don't exist. I think as I, I've always had an interest in, in classics and, and uh, Roman history, uh, ancient history in general, but um, as I've gotten older, I've developed an interest in the more practical areas of philosophy, Stoicism in particular, because it's just so useful for living a good life <laughs> and keeping things in perspective. And I think from a Stoic perspective, you could say this, this movie is a broadly Stoic movie. Emperors die and their reign ends. The things we build... Uh, are built and then they decay. I mean, the Colosseum is a good example. Anything that's built is going to decay over time. Um, empires will decay or uh, republics will decay into empires. Everything we build has its has its time limit on it, uh, you know, however tangible or intangible it might be. And given that, you could, that could easily slip into nihilism, right? I mean, all of life could become a big farce, right? If none of it matters and everything's finite, what's the point of any of it? Any of it? And what, what's unique about Stoicism, I think, is that it manages somehow to acknowledge the finitude of things and maybe the potential meaningless, meaninglessness of things, but still prioritizing duty and harmony with nature and the logos and order to the cosmos. And this movie manages to... Uh, I see do justice to both. I mean, there's finitude and death writ large inside the movie. And at the same time, ideals are still held up and there's still meaningfulness and there's still purpose. And there's still, uh, uh all of the virtues that Mark, Marcus Aurelius advocated for. I think the movie does a great job of, of, uh, conveying stoicism in, in dramatic form. Yeah. I think what's interesting is in some ways, um, the movie even can't escape its it, our own Judeo-Christian values because there's a you know there's a reward for um, Maximus at the end to to go to Elysium you know and to be with his his family 
Um, and that, and that is because of course he lived a good life. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I would say that's a, a terrible way of looking at Christendom because that would, would be an incorrect view, you know, of that. If you live a good life, you go to heaven. That that's not how it works in, in there, but it's a cultural conception that that's how it works. Um, and, uh, so I, I do find that to be in, incredibly interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I do think the, you know, the, the movie can only go so far, of course. Um, and it's not really meant in many ways to, to make us ask too deep a questions, especially about no, no, stoicism, but I, but I, I think, I think you're right. It's important to remember that, that the Roman empire was heterogeneous, right? I mean, it's, it's an inherently cosmopolitan society. We've got this religion and that religion and this culture and that culture and this ethnicity and that ethnicity and this cosmogenic myth and this cosmogenic myth, right? And so Romans didn't sweat it too much. There's a reason that skepticism, you know, arose in the Roman empire because with that many different beliefs, you know, living alongside each other, you know, you know, well, uh, well-educated, sophisticated Romans were like, "How can we know? You know, you've got your beliefs, and I've got mine, and that's the end of the end of the story." So, skepticism was uh, just as popular as stoicism for that very reason. So, Romans didn't themselves didn't sweat it too much, I don't think. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right in that. Um, now one of the things that before we kind of like wrapped up, I, I, we talked about you know the production of the film, but I do think. That this is one of those movies, and, and mainly, too, because it became such a big thing all in and of itself, which was the music. Um, you know, Hans Zimmer's score to this film, like, really took on a life of its own. And, but I, it, it truly is one of those scores that makes the movie pop off the screen in a way that if it wasn't there, the movie would not be the same. And, and so, I mean, I, did you love it as much as everybody else? Is this still something that resonates with you that you'll listen to as you're studying or, you know, whatever to get you going, you know, uh, in a battle sequence, some music or like, or is it just something that like you enjoyed in the film, but you know, it, whatever. You know, I, I can't say I've listened to the score on its own, absent the film, but I think the score has to do a, a really difficult job. Like, there are some incredibly dramatic, epic scenes. Uh, and so the score has got to carry that and, and drive that for it, of course. But it's such a human film at the same time. And actually, while I was watching the film again uh, early this morning uh, in preparation for uh, recording this today, the, the portion of the score that stood out to me was the uh, the, the death sequence where Marcus Aurelius uh, is killed by Commodus. It's an incredibly haunting, subtle score, and it just worked so, so well in that moment. And um, I think it's just a complicated score. It's got to it's got to be epic and it's got to be human and and uh, and subtle at the same time. It does a really well job, really good job of it. That works really well. I completely agree with you. You know, I, I think that um, the beauty of the score is the way that it accentuates all of the moments uh, from the big to the small. And did you have a favorite moment or two from the score in, in the uh, film? I do. I do think it just comes right at the beginning um, with the battle sequence where, you know, they unleash hell and the music kind of unleashes it on you as well. Right. And it just 
it creates that sense of driving motion that fits perfectly with every single moment that's being displayed on screen. And so, yeah, I, I th- and I think that's, as you mentioned too, there's that moment and then you can juxtapose that with the beauty of that moment and the heartbreak of that moment as a father is murdered by his son. And it's just so powerful in both places. I think that that's incredibly – it's just incredibly well done. The talent there of Zimmer to, to bring that home in both places is excellent, and it really works. Where I think the score fails a little bit for me is that I just have a, a preference for highly melodic pieces, and I'm struggling even as we're talking right now to think of a strong – theme or motif that I could hum off the top of my head for you. I don't, I can't, I can't think of a strong, uh, theme or melody from this, uh, film that, that, that I remember. And, you know, uh, unlike say Braveheart, where I think there are, there are motifs in Braveheart that just stick with me and they stick with me to this day. And, and I have a hard time grasping onto a, a strong theme that, I, that hooks me, huh. uh, in my memory at least. I, man, that's really interesting because I'm the opposite. There's a few in this film that I can, I can still hum in my head. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it could I, be that I've seen Braveheart 30 yeah. times and I've seen this like four. There right? you go. <laughs> so. um, but I, I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this is definitely a score to go back and to be able to enjoy and try and listen to um, outside of the film. Cause it is again, really well done. And I think the hauntingness of the, the, use of a uh, vocal artist as well in the score really accentuates that. Um, and I, in the same way, I, you know, we kept, we've talked about the, the Lord of the Rings, but you know, Peter Jackson did the same thing in the Lord of the Rings films and, and, and really used that to the benefit with the score that, uh, uh, Howard Shore did. So I, I think it's, it's great. Um, I would say in contrast, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Lord of the Rings from a score standpoint, because I remember the first time I saw The Fellowship of the Ring, I remember being in the car on the drive home from that, humming the, humming the music. Right, <laughs> it yep. just stuck with me immediately. And the themes in this one just don't stick with me in particular for some, yeah. some reason I can't explain. Well, with all of that said, I, I can't wait to see where you're going to end up with a rating for Gladiator. Oh, th- this is a clear uh, five out of five. Um this is a, a great, great film. It's emotional. It's epic. Great characters. Great acting. Great visuals. Great score. There's nothing bad about this movie whatsoever. I would say the one weakness for me is probably I might have tightened up some of the uh, the war sequences at the beginning of the film. It, it probably just owed a little too much to Braveheart there and trying to live up to the epic quality. Um, I, I I would have trimmed that maybe a little bit. But uh, other than that, this is a great, great film. So I'm going to give it five out of five. Uh, let's use something Latin here. How about uh, five out of five gladii, uh, Roman nice. swords? I, I, this is a five. I mean, hands down. Uh, it's just a great film. I enjoy rewatching it. Uh, every time I do, and um, it continues to stand up. And uh, if you if you haven't, um, I would highly encourage anybody. There's a great making of documentary on uh, the Blu-ray or the 4K or DVD or whatever you've got. Um, and it, it's so good. It, it talks about all of the stuff that goes into this film. It's a it's a really in-depth one as well. It's it's I think two and a half hours. But it's so worth your time to see all that they put into this film. So, uh, But Zach, if people wanted to catch up with you and see uh, everything that you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, there are two good places. You can find me on my website, ZacharyFruling.com, where I tend to write about philosophy and sometimes philosophy and film. And you can always follow me uh, still to this very day on the app formerly known as Twitter. I'm just at Zachary Fruling. 
And of course, you could find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. Of course, here on the network, you can find me with Literary Tracks, The Orb, Warp 5, Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me with two shows. One is called Owl Post, about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, and Aggressive Negotiations, talking to John Mills about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs>